uh, looking at a series that we're calling Community 101. Basically, what does it mean to live together? What does it mean to live together? What does it mean to live not just together, but as Christians living together? And not just as Christians necessarily living together, but living harmoniously together. I mean, many of us can just live together, but I don't think uh, harmony would be the word that characterized those uh, relationships. We can go back to some of the previous living conditions that we've been in, or sadly for some of you, the current living conditions that you're in, and go, well, that was not harmonious living. But the Scriptures talk regularly about what does it mean for Christians to live together as one. We looked last week, and when Christ prayed in John 17, it was his, what they are called his high priestly prayer. It was his prayer to the Father on our behalf. And in it, he was making profound statements. Think about it. This is Christ himself, the Son of God, our Savior and Lord, who was praying for us, and he repetitively said in there, Father, make them one, just as we are one in the Godhead. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, he said, Father, make my people, the church, throughout all the ages, make them one in that same way, that they would live together in such a way that all of the world would know that you sent me and that I am the Son of God and that the gospel is true. And we highlighted, I did, at least a couple of thoughts from Francis Schaeffer uh, in his book, The Mark of a Christian, which talked about the fact that our life together allows the world to look in and basically determine whether or not Christianity is true. That the world is looking in. It doesn't get them off the hook. They can't get to heaven and say, well, I lived in a community where the church was really bad, so I should get a pass. But it does allow them to look in and basically say this, if that's what Christianity is all about, I don't want to have any part of it. Or on the positive flip side, wow. There is something so uniquely profound and different about this group of people who come from every kind of background, every kind of race, every kind of socioeconomic uh, background, all of these things, culturally, education-wise, nationality-wise, and somehow they're brought together under one banner and under one banner only, and that's this banner of Christ, and somehow they come and their differences fade away. They're a group of people that somehow, when they fail one another, they still love and stay together. That they come together with a common cause, and they move forward, and things change because they exist together. Not in solidarity, but together in oneness. And so we've been looking at that and looking at what it means, and we were designed and created that way. You were never designed or created to be alone. I have friends, and there's movements now, especially in the Western church, uh, to move away from the gathered body of believers, and I can just have church on my own. Uh, I can just be by myself. I can just have church. Why do I need to go uh, to a church? Because a church is a mess. Why would I want to be involved in all of that stuff? You've heard it said about the church that a church is like a sausage factory. You like the final product, but you don't want to know what goes into making it, and uh, a lot of people feel that way. They're like, I don't want to be involved in all of that stuff. The infighting and the bickering and the people getting upset about the wrong things and, and splitting apart and doing all of this. And so we are called to live together in a way, uniquely in the world, that points people to Christ. If we say we want to know Christ and make him known, the first way that we're going to do that is how we gather together and live together as a corporate body of believers here. 
and as guests and visitors come in and are welcomed in, they will be able to see whether or not we believe what we say we believe. And so this morning we're going to look uh, throughout, uh, uh, we're going to look specifically at one idea, uh, but this idea of one anotherness comes uh, all the way through the New Testament. One uh, scholar put it that there's probably about 59 one another passages uh, in the New Testament. Things like this, be at peace with one another, wash one another's feet, love one another, love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, stop passing judgment on one another, accept one another. You see how it kind of works. It's the one anotherness, that when we become one with Christ and we're joined to him, we've said that guess who else you're joined with? If you look down the rows and around the room, you're joined with those folks. And that may be encouraging to you or it may be frustrating to you, but that's how it is. We're joined together. They may be thinking the same thing about you, by the way. Uh, you know, they've said in families that if every family has one of those members of the family and you say that, you say that yours doesn't, you might be that one. Um, so in this church, if you say, hey, this person is the problem in the church, be careful because there are a lot of people could be looking back at you going, you're the problem in this church. And so what we're looking at is how do we live in one anotherness? How do we live connected together? And the, the one another passage or the one another theme that is repeated more than any other is one that says love one another. Love one another. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning is what does it look like for us as a community of believers to love one another? Now, obviously, this cannot be an exhaustive treatment of love. Uh, it's too broad and too vast, and I couldn't even make a dent in it. But what we're going to look at is just some facets of it. We're, we're going to go through about five things, talking about love, uh, how it reflects in our lives, how we engage it in the lives of other people around us. Uh, but the first thing that we're going to look at is this love one another uh, idea. It's been said that love is the supreme good, that, the, that love is not just a characteristic of God, it is the very character of God. And it would therefore surmise that if we are following down a logical thought pattern, that if it's not just a characteristic of God, but it is actually the very character of God, it is, is known by his love, then those who follow him and call upon his name, love isn't just one of many characteristics of them, but it is the central characteristic of the followers of Christ. They have to be known and distinguished by their love. And so when we... When when Christ was challenging one of the rulers in Luke, and he came and it says that the ruler was looking at him to try to test Jesus, and he said, Jesus, how is it that I fulfill all? He goes, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's saying that's primarily how the law is summed up, very simply in that way. It's summed up by a matter of love. And so we're going to come and we're going to look and see that John wrote, a new commandment I give you, or Jesus spoke, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you love one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Fulfilling the law through love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another as we do for you. And let us in Hebrews consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And in Peter, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Are you guys getting it? Do I need to read any more to you? It's repetitive. Have you been in a conversation with someone when they're so excited about something and they're giving you reason after reason after reason for their position? And you finally look at them and go, I got it. I got it. That's kind of how this is. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles and the writers and the Holy Spirit working through them is saying this, folks, I want you to get this. Love each other. Love each other. And it's almost as if he was assuming our response, which was, I got that. I got it. No, 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 I don't think you have it. Here, I'm going to say it again. Love one another. I got that one, Jesus. No, I don't think you have it. Let me rephrase it for you. Love one another. Jesus, really, we got this. Love one another. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. Have you ever thought why he says it so much? Could it possibly be that it's of supreme importance to love one another? that it may be the most important characteristic within the church is how we love each other. Jesus said it over and over and over again. Love each other. Love each other. Love one another. Wash each other's feet. Care for one another. Give away your possessions in love to one another. Be willing to die for one another out of love. Everything that we do towards one another has to be motivated and generated by this love. No other motive uh, can push us that way. And any other motive we should question and be cautious of. So before you go do something, before you go care for someone, before you challenge someone, before you make a decision, ask, what's my motive in this? Now granted, no motive is pure, right? And by the way, I don't know your motives. Only you know your motives. So I am putting myself in a dangerous place if I say, oh, well, he's motivated by this or she's motivated by that. You, on your own, check your motives and go, why is it that I want to engage this friend? Why is it that I want to do this? Why is it that I want to do that? Is it generated and motivated out of love? And on the flip side of that, if you find yourself hesitant to engage in the things that the scriptures call you to engage in, ask why. And if you're bold enough, be willing to go, God, is it because of a true lack of love for that person? I just don't want to get messy in their lives. Gosh, that's so complex. I just, what you're really showing is a lack of love in that way. And so love becomes this highest ground for us to try to take. And the passage of Scripture which is most familiar to us is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's sort of the watershed passage on love. Another one you can go look at, we're not going to look at it today, is 1 John uh, chapter 3. Actually, 1 John, and John uses the word agape uh, more times for love there in that chapter than Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 13. Too often this has been relegated to weddings only. But this is what Paul is challenging us with in the church of Corinth and now to us at the church of Hilton Head. If I speak when the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. God, we ask now for your spirit in a special way to teach us. This is a vast topic and one that we can only begin to scratch at the surface today. But would you drive these truths home into our hearts? And would they become part of the very marrow that gives us life? that we would be people known distinctively for our love. First, to you, and as an outflow of that, to one another and to the world around us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians is talking about a specific kind of love. The Greek language uh, spoke of love in different words. There was agape, which was a high, pure form of love. Uh, At some level, unattainable love. Uh, that it was a selfless love. Uh, it was a love that didn't regard uh, our position or cost to us at all. And it's the love that is pointed to most often in the scriptures. And here, Paul uses it over and over again. Other loves of philos, where you get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That idea of love between friends and of brothers who are basically standing together side by side, moving forward towards a common goal in that way. And then eros, which is that erotic love of passion and intimacy uh, between a man and a woman when they come together and instead of facing uh, together sideways looking towards a common goal, it is the picture of love towards one another and brought together. It's said in the scriptures that God loves us in all of those ways. But here in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at love uh, as agape love, that it is a love that uh, is us loving one another from a selfless from a baseless place, saying, I'm going to die to my own wants, hopes, and desires in order to put the hopes, desires, and wants of someone else above my own. But I'm going to start this morning with the bad news, okay? We'll start today with the bad news. You see, when the Corinthian church was reading this letter, and it was a letter that was read from beginning to end. They didn't have it busted up into chapters. When they were reading it, and they got to 1 Corinthians 13, I would venture to guess that they didn't take it very kindly. Uh, They didn't take it home like we do uh, and put it on our walls. Love is patient and kind and good and all of this, because the way that Paul begins this is with a stinger. He begins it by criticizing them 
first. He begins by calling them out. The Corinthian church was a good church. It, was, it had a lot of stuff going on. It was obvious that they had prophecy and tongues and, and miracles happening, and they were gathering money for the poor, uh, and they were doing things. They had some other things that were going on that were just so sinister and dark. And Paul here at the beginning is really calling them out. He's challenging them in a way uh, of basically saying, to picture of all the things that they are not is really what he's saying. And so the first thing we're going to look at in this bad news is we need to grow up. Part of the bad news is we need to grow up. Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Why do you think Paul wrote that? Go into the context of the original reader. Why do you think Paul wrote that to the church at Corinth? Could it possibly be that they were acting like adolescents? Could it possibly be that they thought they were mature, but yet the framework by which they were engaging many of life's issues were childish? And Paul comes at them, and I'm sure if I stood up here this morning and told you, guys, you're being childish, how would you respond to me? You'd raise an eyebrow like, really, who are you to say that I'm childish? One lady used to remind me at uh, Second Pres in Memphis, you know, son, I have underwear that's older than you. The mental image of that just disgusted me, but uh, beyond that, she was basically letting me know, you don't have much to speak into my life. You're 28 and I'm 75. I got it. Paul is here speaking to us, and he's saying this, if you want to learn about love and you want to learn about how to live together, here's one thing you need to know. You need to grow up. You're acting like children. You're getting excited about the wrong things. For a child, a child gets excited about flashy things, right? A a child gets excited about things that go boom and pop and run around and make noise and have bright lights and all of those things. And it's as if that's what the church of Corinth was doing. They were going, oh, we're going to be about tongues because tongues are really cool. And prophecies, oh, that's awesome. We want to be known as the prophecy church. Oh, and we're going to have incredible ministries over here. And we're going to do this. And we're going to have program after program after program and buildings and all of the best bells and whistles. We're going to be that kind of church. And Paul said, that's childish behavior. Because if that's what you consider most important, and you have all of those things, but you don't have love, you're a clanging gong, and a symbol that's gone out. He think, folks, you need to grow up. Your reasoning of how you're engaging one another is flawed because your reasoning of how you engage one another is based on childish motives and childish framework. How many of you, as parents... You haven't necessarily verbalized this to those incredibly sweet children that the Lord has blessed you with. But at times in your life, you just want to look and go, grow up. What are you saying to them? You are addressing the world from an adolescent worldview. Now, that's a crazy thought for us as parents. You can't expect a child to engage the world any other way. So what Paul is challenging us here is saying this, how you're engaging each other is very often from a childish vantage point. And guess who is the center of the world in a child's world? Mom and Dad, I want to do everything in my power to make your marriage better. I would like to do everything within of my 18-month-old mind and my 8-year-old mind and my 14-year-old mind and my 20-year-old mind. I want to do everything I possibly can to make the world a better place for everybody other than me. 
Isn't that normally how it works? If you are wrestling with the idea and the doctrine of total depravity, which means all of us are born into this depraved state, uh, put two 18-month-old children into one room with one toy. You're not going to see them go, oh, no, after you. Oh, no, please, indubitably, after you. I would rather you enjoy and me sit and just bask in the pleasure of your entertainment. That's not how it works. And Paul is challenging us. He's saying, folks in the church, how you approach life way too often is from a childish vantage point. You're the center of it. You're asking questions which begin with I and me and we which begin with, I don't particularly like this, or I don't think I can do this, that I need this done in order for it to be more pleasurable for me. And Paul is challenging us. He says, that's fine when you're a child. But when you begin to grow, you have to change the way that you approach things, that we have to mature. Peter and John and other writers were saying this, you have to move on from milk and baby food. You need to move on to the more mature things uh, in life. You need to move on to the things that are deeper and more profound. And so we go, oh, I want to learn more about theology. I want to learn more about the end times. I want to learn more about all of this stuff. He's going, no, if you really want to grow, you want to get into some really mature discussions. Here's a mature discussion for you. Figure out how to love one another as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you and accounted heaven as nothing to be grasped but emptied himself and was willing to come and to on his knees. You want to consider from an adult vantage point what love looked like? Spend the rest of the afternoon. I'm a Panthers fan, and it would be a waste of my afternoon to see them blow another lead in the fourth quarter. What would be a really good opportunity for me is maybe to consider today, at some time today, to sit down and to consider how is it that the Lord of the universe washed the feet of his disciples? Why did he do that? Why that act? Why not some other act? Why that one? What are the implications of that? And allow it to begin to change my way of thinking towards love to one another, to mature it, to grow it up out of its adolescence. Because I find myself uh, talking a lot about me. And when I start talking a lot about me, that usually shows an immaturity in me. Lisa and I went, uh, we were at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and a friend of ours needed to get counseling hours. He was in the counseling ministry uh, there getting his, do- his uh, master's in counseling, and so we volunteered. It's not that we had any issues. We were fine, uh, but uh, we, we went and said, okay, fine, free counseling. That's awesome, and what we learned in there was we needed some little higher-level counseling, and so he goes, wow, I don't understand any of that. Why don't you go talk to my professor? So we were talking with this man, Dr. Richardson. And he said, I want you to try, and he called it the awareness wheel. He said, I want you to try this when you begin to talk to one another. Uh, instead of using, uh, you know, pointing at the other person, you talk about yourself, and you, you begin to own your stuff a little bit more, and, and you start to look at the other person differently. And so instead of going, you did this wrong, and you did this wrong, you begin to say, I think this way, and I'm feeling this way. Lisa and I were driving home from Charlotte with the boys very young, heading back to Jackson. We were in Gastonia. I know right where we were. We were crossing under uh, an overpass, and we were in the midst of a slight discussion where we weren't seeing eye to eye, and I was right. She was wrong, and I was letting her know that I was right and she was wrong, 
And so I was letting her know that, well, you were doing this and you were doing that. And she said, Bill, don't you remember all of our counseling? You're supposed to use I statements. And so in all the incredible maturity that I had learned about how to love my wife, I looked at her and I said, fine, let me try it this way. I don't like what you're doing. And I don't think that you're doing it right. And I don't really want to talk to you for the next 10 hours. So can we make it to Jackson, please, in that way? What was I acting like? A child. I was acting like an absolute infant child who wasn't getting his way and was going to stomp my feet and clap my hands and pout and do. And Paul is challenging us here first and foremost. The bad news is this, folks, it's time for us to grow up. We need to love one another in a more mature way uh, than we have been. Now, don't read into that of going, wow, I wonder what's going on. It's just in general that, that we need to grow up in this way. We need to quit having a child's short attention span and move on to all the shiny balls that are out there instead of sticking with the ones that are a little less sexy and the ones that are a little less exciting and stick with the things that are most important. So the bad news is we need to grow up. Another part of the bad news this morning is in verse 12 that we don't know everything yet. If you're a guest or a visitor, you're probably going, wow, this is an incredibly uplifting church. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Stay with me. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Christian love requires an immense amount of humility. It requires a humility that says, I don't know everything that's going on in the life of that other person, and I will submit myself in a way and humble myself in a way as not to stand above them, but to engage. You ever run into somebody and they're just sort of snippy? They're just kind of rude to you. Oh, who is that person? Who do they think they are? Do you have any idea what may have happened to them leading into that? Did you take a moment to go, you know what? I don't know everything, but I'm still called to love that person in this way, that we don't know everything about love. I've heard over and over again in my ministry life this, Bill, I got it. Bill, I got it. How are you doing in your love for your spouse? How's that going in that relationship? We're fine, I got it. Uh, how are you doing when you're, you're loving your children? Children, how are you doing as you're engaging your parents? Kids, when you're on the school campus, how are you doing in your love towards one another as you're out in the workplace? How are you doing as you love one another as Christ first loved you? I got it. Do you see the incredible arrogance that comes with that statement? Versus saying, I'm trying. I'm learning, I'm working at it, but I don't have it yet. You see, the bad news is we don't know everything yet. Another part of the bad news is this. We look good on the outside, but it's the heart that matters. And I've already mentioned it, uh, but it's just that first part. If you speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I will give away all that I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is really challenging us as a church to say, are you willing to forego, forego some of the flashy things in our culture and be known as a church that loves one another well. It's great that we gathered 70 bags this morning to go give to the poor, but Paul says, who cares if you don't love each other? 
It's great that we had wonderful music this morning, and we've got nice facilities, and the children are being uh, taught and entertained over there, and we have all these good things, and we're going to have a big picnic next week, and it's going to be over in Leamington at the pool, and it's going to be a wonderful time, and there's going to be burgers and food, and people are going, oh, this is awesome, this is great, you've got great stuff going on, and the kids are going to gather tonight, and American Heritage girls are going to get together, and there's going to be small groups this week, and there's going to be all of this stuff happening, and Paul's going to look at you and go, who cares unless you love one another well. That's the easy stuff. We hang out in the easy stuff too much. You know what gets hard? In my home, I'd imagine if you asked my boys, what would be hard? It'd be, hey, it'd be hard to love dad and mom. It's hard to love when we have disputes. It's hard to love people who are different from you. Uh, it's hard to love people who've wounded you and hurt you. It's hard to love when you've been wounded and hurt and you want to stay back in your cave, in your shelter, and protect yourself. It's hard to do that. And so what do we do? We get busy doing other stuff. Paul says, be about the most important things. Love one another. Wow. So what does that love look like? That's the bad news, that we don't have it all yet, uh, that we are childish too often and we need to grow up. Uh, and that we get distracted on things. So what do we need to focus on? Here's what he says you need to focus on, is this kind of love. Love that is patient and kind. Love that does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, and endures all things. Hmm. It's a lot of things and characteristics to think about. But he's saying, I've given you a picture so that you're not just shooting at a wall with no marker on it. There's no target. Folks, he's given us a target. He's given us a picture of what love looks like. And so what we need to do then is to begin in maturity uh, and in confidence and in humility and, and in the power and the beauty of Christ filled by his spirit to start to come to one another and ask one another those kind of questions. You want to grow in love? You want to see what that love is? Go to somebody who you trust. Hopefully it's your spouse who has your best interest in mind and won't just take pot shots at you. But you go to them and ask them this question. As I love you, does it line up well with those characteristics? How many of you are excited and willing to take on that homework this afternoon? That that's going to be the topic. Anybody just look forward to that? Because guess what happens so often? We know what the answer is going to be. And therefore, we'll never ask the question. I was a part of a men's group for a number of years in Rock Hill. And at the beginning of the men's group, we had a covenant that we would sign. And part of the covenant, if you were married, you had to go to your wife and you had to list, have listed out in front of her all of the fruit of the Spirit. And your wife, who knows you best, would then write down what fruit of the Spirit you needed to develop or she had hoped to see develop most in your life over the course of that semester together with other men. Wow. Most of that, there were a lot of men who didn't do the group. You want to know why? They didn't want to hear that. But if you want to grow, you're going to go to somebody and say, is my love for you patient? Is my love for you, does it boast? Would you see me loving other people? Do I, am I boastful? Most of life is junior high, isn't it? In this way. Oh, that happened to you? Great. Well, this happened to me. And it's even better. Oh, you caught a fish? Well, I caught two fish. 
Oh, well, my dad caught an even bigger fish than that. Oh, well, my dad has all the fish in the world. Oh, well, you can't answer. Okay, fine. You win. Your dad has all the fish. And so we up one another. One up, one up, one up. Instead of, you want to know what a humble person never talks about? Themselves. And a person who comes to you and says, I'm not wrestling with pride at all, is one who is riddled with pride, as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He's prideful indeed. And so we come and we want to look at these characteristics of patience and kindness, not envious. We live here in a culture that's all about envy. You know what drives most of the markets around here? You know how many of you who are in real estate are making your money? It's the guy who has to have the bigger house because somebody else got the bigger house, and that helps your bottom line, but it's driven by dissatisfaction with the current status quo. We're envious of those things, and then we boast about the things that we have uh, in all of that stuff. And so we're driven culturally by so many of these things. It doesn't insist on its own way, but it basically says this, though I may think that I'm right in this, I wouldn't have given you my opinion had I not thought that my opinion was the better opinion, but I will submit my opinion to your opinion because I'm not going to insist on my own way of doing it. I'm going to let you do it. And I'm not going to sit back and go, watch this one fail. You ever done that? Oh, fine, go that way. And the whole time you're going, they're going to fail. You just let them fail, just to ring out and to, to, to be out in the wind. It says that we don't insist on it. It's not irritable. There's a good one. Any of you guys irritable? I found out that one of the problems with my job last week was I was having one of those weeks. You ever had one of those weeks? My week last week was pretty well got to a boiling point where I realized one thing, at least last week. The greatest hindrance to my job is I was getting really tired of people. They were driving me nuts at every single turn. Nobody could do anything right. I had several people in tears last week because I was just irritable. And one person looked at me and says, hey, when, you've got your, uh, when your emotions are on your sleeve, is it okay if you just move on by and don't say anything? It's like, how rude for that person. I just couldn't stand it. I was just irritable. Well, as I step back and ponder that, oh, well, it was just a bad week. A mature person who's wanting to grow says, Lord, would you by your spirit come and dive into my heart a little bit more, and would you be willing to show me what it was that really was, was driving that irritability? What was causing me not to love in a way that I was called to love? Would you show that to me so that not only can I repent of those things, but I can then begin to change those things in my life? So if you don't see these things in your life, begin to ask why you don't see them in your life and begin to change them. Another point that we're going to look at this morning and touch on, there's two more, number four and five. First one we said was we're going to love one another. The second was the bad news uh, first. Uh, third one there we said was what does this love look like? Uh, well, it looks like this, of it believes and bears all things. There's a wonderful little series we did last uh, spring with some couples uh, in the church. It's uh, Andy Stanley's called I Marriage. How many of you guys have looked at that series? Anybody? Looked, a few of you have looked at that series. Wonderful little series. And in it, Stanley picks up on this, that love believes all things. And then I'll move on to this next point. It believes all things. Basically what it means is it believes the best about someone. How often do you go to believing the worst about someone? When someone fails you, our normal default mode is it was they're, they, they're up to something. Versus, I'm going to believe the best about them until I'm proven wrong. We start normally at a different place. We start with, I'm not going to believe them. I'm going to believe the worst about them until they're proven right. Until I'm proven right. Excuse me, wait a second. I'm going to believe the worst about them until I'm proven wrong. But we start at a different place. That happens in the church all the time. 
Bill, you didn't return my phone call. I didn't get a return phone call from Bill. Therefore, he must not care about me. I didn't get this done well this week in my office. Therefore, that person this. They don't care for me. They, they're slack. They're this. Instead of believing the best, maybe something happened, and I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt in this one, and I'm going to re-engage the person instead of waiting. We have people in our church, and we have people in our lives. Have you ever seen a, an adult pout? You want to most, one of the most pathetic things you can ever see at an adult pouting? I got my feelings hurt. And you know what a pouting person does? Is they go... And they sit down and they wait. I'm going to wait for you to come and find me. I'm going to pout until you come to me and say, I am so sorry. What's wrong, sweetie? What's the problem? You hurt my feelings. You didn't invite me out with all the guys. You're kidding, right? You're angry and you're pulling back from ministry and you're pulling back from relationship because I didn't invite you out Thursday night? You realize that I was the one who got invited out, and so I couldn't just invite you. It was an invitation for something. Oh, I didn't realize that. I just assumed you didn't like me. Hmm. We've got to grow beyond those things, folks. That's what Paul's calling us to. That this love that we have, it has to look differently than that. And then he says in verse 8 that this love that we have in the church is a foretaste of heaven. Love never ends. As prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. But as for knowledge, it will pass away. But love lasts forever. It has no end. What we begin to experience here is what we will experience in perfection for all eternity. He says it has no end. So instead of investing yourself in things that are going to burn up and, and pass away, he says this, how about investing yourself in the one thing that will last into eternity? And that is relationship with one another through love and relationship with God through love with him. And then the final thing is this, focus on the most important things. I've already alluded to it. Focus on the most important things in the time that we have together. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I'll end with this. Too often in our lives, we major on the minor things. I was in a swimming pool one time with another pastor and our families, and uh, gosh, we didn't have kids yet, we were young, and I was still in seminary, it was me and Lisa and this other guy and his wife, and he's the pastor now of a big old church in a city in the state here, and he was looking at me, he goes, so Bill, what's your thoughts on end times? I was like, well, I don't know, I hadn't really thought about it a lot. He said, well, we're going to get pulled out first, I mean, we're gonna, is it the pre-tribulation, we're going to get yanked out, and, and all of this, and it's going to be the rapture and all that, and all this, and I was like, you know what, I hadn't really thought, I mean, it's just not that important to me. All I know is Jesus wins in the end, and that's good enough for me. So if I get yanked out, awesome. If I don't, fine, I'll make it to the end. And if you get yanked out and I'm left behind, oh, shoot. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, but I was like, I'm just not going to get into an argument with you. He goes, but Bill, this is so important. And I was like, really? How many people have come to faith through your arguments about end times? Well, none. Oh, well, then I'm not going to spend any more time on it. If you want to know my position, I'm pan-millennial. You've heard that one? It's all going to pan out in the end. So uh, I've got deeper thoughts than that. So, but, uh, but we need to focus on the important stuff. Instead of getting all fired up about these things. Oh, my goodness, you believe in infant baptism? You people are so weird. It's, don't you understand that it's only through immersion and coming up out of the water that you experience a new life that's in Christ? And then on the other side, you're going, oh, no, it's only in the sprinkling that you get it done. And this, and you people are all messed up over here. You want to know the beauty of the scriptures? It doesn't make it clear on either side. So therefore, we shouldn't make it a major tenet here. It's important, yes. 
But Paul would say, quit arguing about baptism. Quit arguing about tongues. Quit arguing about prophecy. Quit arguing about all of that stuff. Why don't you get busy about the most important things? And the most important thing that I can think of is do you love each other really well? Why not be a church? And if you want to grow, and as we want to grow in Christ, here's what we're going to do over and over and over and over again, okay? It's going to be so repetitive, you're going to get sick of it. We're going to look at Christ. You want to grow in your love? Look at love. If you're an artist and you want to grow in your ability to, to be an artist, then you need to be in the Louvre. You need to be in New York in the greatest uh, museums there. You need to go to Chicago. You need to go all over and sit and look at art and let it shape you. So if you want to be one who loves well, then go and stare at love. Go and look at the cross until it changes you. And then look back at it. And then when you've had a week like I had, instead of just going and, and being upset and going out that night and saying, well, I'm just going to have a drink or I'm just going to go out and I'm going to play ball or I'm just going to go do this, go look at the cross and let it shape you and change you. So for our church, we're going we're gonna to do all the other stuff. We're going to have programs and buildings and stuff like that. Those are all fun and great to have. But only if they're driven from a foundation that says, in order for us to be a more loving church, we need these things. And until we grow in our love for one another, there's no need for us to go after all this other stuff. So, that's what we're going to do. So this week, here's your homework. Practice loving this way. Go to somebody you know who loves you and say, how am I doing? How am I doing? And see what they say. Sound good? Let's grow up this week. It's a friend of mine like you like to say. Let's put on our big boy pants and our big girl pants and let's go live life together. So we're going to live life together. Let's stand and pray and then we'll sing together today. Father, thank you. Thank you for the challenge that it is to realize it doesn't matter how old we are when we come to faith, how successful we've been, that when we enter the kingdom of heaven, we enter as an infant. And therefore, we need to grow and to learn. We don't have it all at the beginning. So for all of us, as we are growing, would we grow together with deep humility, with love for one another, love for you that's born out. God, help us to be a congregation and a church that's known distinctively for one thing more than anything else. It's that we loved really well. To Christ be the glory. Amen.